In this episode, we're talking about the 2017 Altmetric Top 100, an annual list that showcases the most popular articles of the last 12 months based on how much attention they've received in the mainstream news, social media, and from other online sources. It provides a fascinating glimpse into which research has really caught the imagination of a broader audience. So Kat, it's top 100 time of the year again. Um, can you remind us how this list was created? Sure. So at Altmetric, we track where published research outputs get talked about online, whether that's in the mainstream news, in policy documents, on social media, um, and in many other sources. And each year we pull a list of the most popular papers from our database to see what has really been resonating amongst a broader audience. And what kind of trends or themes have you noticed in the data? Well, from year to year, we see quite common trends, actually. So a lot of medical and health research gets talked about a lot by a broader audience because they're interested to see things that will really directly impact them. Um, there's quite a bit of climate change research in the list this year and also some interesting studies about people's mental health. And what do you think this list shows about how we consume and share research? Well, I think it's really interesting. It, it can help us understand how research is having an impact beyond the academy, um, show which topics resonate most with a broader audience, but also show how our understanding of global issues is evolving. And what role do you think publishers have to play in communicating research more broadly? As the um, popularity of open access has increased, publishers have played an increasingly important role in making research more widely available, um, but also in disseminating it to a broader audience. So we see a lot of publishers these days uh, with blogs or with social network accounts that they use to really help share that research more widely. This year's top article published in The Lancet revealed something that might surprise you. Contrary to popular belief, researchers reviewed the diet of over 100,000 people in 18 countries and discovered that low-fat diets may actually result in a higher risk of premature death. We spoke to author Dr. Mashid Degan to find out more about the work behind the scenes. Hi, Mashid. Can you tell us a bit about your research and what were you looking to answer um, or find out? Uh, yeah, the prospective urban uh, rural epidemiology study is a large international cohort study of uh, more than uh, 150,000 people aged 35 to 70 years from 18 countries, high, middle, and low income from five, five continents. And in the present study that we published, we included 135,000 individuals with dietary information and without history of cardiovascular disease. And our main objective was to assess association between carbohydrates and fat and mortality and cardiovascular disease. What we found is it was interesting because uh, our study showed that contrary to popular belief, increased consumption of dietary fat was associated with lower risk of death. Um, in fact, uh, among those with high fat intake, about 35% energy from daily fat, they had 23% lower risk of death and 18% lower risk of stroke compared with the low fat intake group. Those people had about 11% energy from fat. And the association with lower mortality was seen for, uh, for other all major types of uh, fat. With mortality was seen for all types of fat. By contrast, a diet high in carbohydrate, about 
68% energy from carbohydrate was associated with 28% higher risk of death. Also, we found total fat and individual types of fat were not associated with risk of heart attack or death from cardiovascular disease. This was the main finding of our study. And, and can you talk about the, the types of fat you're referring to when you say a diet um, uh, consisting predominantly of, 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 um, of fats? Yes. The types of fat that uh, we measured are saturated, mono, and polyunsaturated fatty acids. And these fats come from very different uh, sources of, uh, as a food source. Mm, okay. And um, how have or, or might the outcomes of this study impact your field? Because I know just hearing that, it's something that I've, I've heard over the past sort of few years. Um, many of our, of our, previous, uh, uh, our previous sort of ideas about diet have been proven to, to be, well, um, if not wrong, but, but, but lacking in, in, in many areas. They don't lead to the results we think. Um, how might this, uh, your results um, impact uh, the I guess, your field? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And uh, the reason is that we are providing new evidence. And as you may know, the guidelines were developed about four decades ago, mainly based on data from some Western countries, such as Finland. And at that time, total fat intake and saturated fat intake was very high in Finland, about more than 40% energy provided by uh, fat or more than 20% energy from saturated fat. And it wasn't clear whether whether the harms seen at such high level applied to current global intake or in countries outside Western countries, low and middle income countries. Therefore, our study showed that guidelines developed for Western countries may not be applicable to low and middle income countries. We observe in low and middle income countries, fat is protective. Therefore, we are providing new evidence. And this is the reason we are challenging the guidelines. The coverage of the, the paper has been huge. Um, I think, you know, I presume a, a big part of that is because people are, are so interested um, in what the correct or, or the right diet is. Um, did you get support from the publisher um, and your institution to help boost that, or was it just an organic thing that, that grew? No, no, actually we got support. The Lancet editorial team found our paper very interesting and have major impact in the field. Therefore, they encouraged media to contact us. And also from McMaster University, the media team contacted the media and we got attention from those supporting teams. And was engaging a wider audience something that you were actively looking to achieve? Of course, because uh, having a wider audience and sharing findings with a more number of people uh, would help us to have a major impact on people's health. Our mission is uh, to find the correct answer for Right to consumption. They are trying to do best uh, to find a right answer. Therefore, we need uh, that people understand it, people be aware of that. Yeah. Are there any tips you'd give to other researchers looking to get attention for their work or any advice you have for making sure the right people see it? Conduct 
high quality research. This is my advice. And uh, also when you conduct a high quality research, you can publish it in more prestigious journal and which uh, consequently uh, help you to find uh, right people to and the right audience and you can deliver the health message uh, to people easier. This is uh, my advice, high quality. One point that I'd like to uh, emphasize is that we are not suggesting very low carbohydrate or very high fat diet. What we are suggesting here is up to 35% energy from fat, about 13% energy from saturated fat is safe. And also about 60% energy from carbohydrate is safe. There is no harm. Uh, no low carb, no very high fat diet is not the message of our study. Moderation is the message of our study. Moderation in consumption of carbohydrates and fat. This is what I would like to emphasize. The second most popular article of the year focused on how the mental health of PhD students is affected by the work stress they face. Lead author Katya Levka gave us an insight into how the research came about. Hi Katya, can you tell us a bit about your research? Uh, what were you looking to answer or find out? Well, as everyone within academia knows, research conditions have changed significantly in the past, say, 10 years. Now, while universities were once seen as low-stress environments, they are now often described in terms of work stress, work overload, work-life imbalances, and so on. In recent years, research policy observers and academics have voiced many concerns about the potential impact of these changes, not only on the quality of research output, but also on well-being and, and mental health. The many voiced concerns in the media suggest that there are a lot of academics struggling with mental health issues. However, when you look at the official registries of universities, you see only a small number of reported illnesses. So this suggests that health issues are only there for a limited number of people. So what we wanted to do with our research is to find out what is really going on. And for this research, we focused exclusively on PhD students. And we had three main questions, namely, the first one is how small or huge is the problem? And how do PhD students compare to the other highly educated in society? And the third question was, to what extent are mental health issues related to the way research within universities is organized? So these were our three main questions. And um, in terms of your results, what, what did you find out? Well, first, the study showed a very high prevalence of mental health issues. We saw that one in two PhD students in Flanders experienced psychological distress, while one in three were at risk of having or developing a common psychiatric disorder, especially depression or generalized anxiety. The second result was that mental health issues were significantly more prevalent in PhD students than in the groups we compared them with, namely higher education students, highly educated employees, and the highly educated in general. And the third main finding was that the experience of mental health problems is related to the way research work is organized. Not surprisingly, we find the strongest associations with work-life imbalances, job demands, and job control. But we also found strong associations with the supervisor's re uh, leadership style and whether team decisions come about in a democratic or non-democratic way. And in addition, we found 
that PhD students who perceive their career chances outside academia as positive are less prone to mental health problems. But however, many PhD students think of a career outside of academia as second best. And how have um, the outcomes of this study impacted your field? Have you, have you seen um, people kind of taking your information, the stuff that you found out, and, and applying it in the real world? Well, since the publication of our study, which is now about eight months ago, we have been contacted on a daily basis by uh, all kinds of groups, academics, policymakers, and media from all over the world, actually. We are asked for interviews and presentations, for workshops, opinion letters, and especially advice on policy programs and on bottom-up initiatives from PhD students themselves. And we have also been consulted by by many, many universities and organizations who are setting up surveys and monitoring systems in order to create their evidence base. Now, it's my deepest hope that those who are setting up such systems consider the possibility of cross-university or cross-national research, because that will enable us to identify what the good and best practices are. And uh, as you kind of just touched on there, the coverage of the paper has been huge. Um, did you get support uh, from the publisher and your institution to help boost that, or was it just something that, that grew organically? Well, we had no support whatsoever. In fact, in our own university, the findings were not even covered in the newsfeed. And, and as for the publisher, we have contacted him several times, suggesting to make the paper open access because it's, it's after a paywall. Very shortly after its online publication, the paper was already boosting and, and going viral. But we had no reaction whatsoever. And the paper is still the most downloaded paper ever in the journal, but it is still behind a paywall, which, which is a pity. So it's correct to say that the viral, viral spread of the paper was, was purely an organic thing. We had uh, no publication plan, no, no communication strategy, except for the usual. Namely, one of the co-authors put it on Twitter and simply asked to share and cite. And in just a few hours' time, even on his Twitter account alone, there were almost 60,000 uh, reactions. So was engaging a wider audience something you were actively looking to achieve? Well, as, as said, we didn't have a specific publication, communication or marketing plan. We were also not prepared for such a huge and quick response uh, as we didn't really know what to expect because before the article got published, we had encountered a lot of mixed reactions and, and barriers as a response to, to our work. On the one hand, we had academics and policymakers telling us that they have known this problem for years, so the paper doesn't really add to their insight. And according to them, the paper is only putting black and white what is already known for years. But on the other hand, we also had a lot of academics and policymakers telling us that our paper was utter nonsense and that there is no problem within academia whatsoever. Actually, that we are that we were creating one by reporting on it, and they said that if there is a health problem, then it would be limited to a few people, and if these people can't handle it, they should just get out. So it's it was kind of a survival of the fittest reaction from some people. Now I guess that the huge response to the article proves that issue is not something limited to the few, and that it's not restricted to Flanders, but. Many academics worldwide are directly or indirectly confronted with mental health issues. And that 
And are there any tips you'd give to uh, other researchers looking to get attention for their, their work or, or any advice you have for making sure the right people see it? This is a hard question. We have been talking about this among the co-authors and, and opinions about that are mixed. What we all agree on is that solid research and adding to the scientific knowledge base is and should be the main goal of, of what researchers do. But within our group, we disagree about the level of of strategic planning of such communication and about marketing research insights because not everyone feels equally comfortable to to frame their research on Twitter or BNTV programs or so on. And not everyone everyone sees an added value in communicating outside the traditional platforms of scientific journals and scientific conferences. But for those who, who do feel comfortable in using a broad range of traditional and social media, I'm sure it might help to get your message out there. But if you go that way, I think there are two important things you should keep in mind. And the first one is that it's a game of give and take. Interacting with the media or using social media, I think, is an art in itself. And it's a long-term investment. You, You cannot simply expect the media to cover your research only when it suits you. As I said, it's it's give and take. And the second thing are the many potential pitfalls when when reactions need to be quick and framed within 140 characters, such as in Twitter. Words can easily be interpreted incorrectly, and this might lead to more harm than good. And this is, of course, a special concern when covering very sensitive issues surrounded by taboo and stigma, like uh, mental health issues. Want a better chance of surviving and not having to go back to hospital after surgery? The third paper in the list concluded that patients treated by female doctors had significantly lower mortality and remission rates. Yusuko Sagawa discussed these results in more detail. Hi, Yusuke. Could you tell us a bit about your research? Um, What were you looking to answer or find out? Previous studies have found that male and female physicians differ in terms of how they practice medicine. Female physicians are more likely to adhere to clinical guidelines, deliver more patient-centered communication, and offer more preventive care. However, it was largely unknown whether such differences have any meaningful impact on patient outcomes. And um, what did your results show? What were your findings? We analyzed a nationally representative data of American people aged 65 or older who were hospitalized with a medical condition, and a total of 1.5 million hospitalizations were analyzed. And we basically found that patients treated by female physicians had about 3 to 4% lower mortality and readmissions compared with patients who were taken care of by male physicians. How have uh, the outcomes of this study um, impacted your field? Have have they they kind of have they raised any flags? Uh, have you heard from any um, the wider communities about your findings? Yeah, I think uh, it, it kind of uh, led to a lot of discussions about why part of this question because uh, people knew about the behavioral differences between male and female outside of healthcare. Looking look to psychology and economics. Um, People have found that uh, male and female behave differently. They are, female are more uh, risk averse than male, and they, and they behave different in a whole bunch of different ways. So um, I think people started looking to is that also the case in healthcare and physicians' behavior as well. 
And the coverage of this this paper has been has been huge. Um, did you get support from the publisher and your institution to help boost that, or was or did it did it just grow organically? I think it was both. I think initially it was uh, my institution and both publishers uh, were really supportive in terms of doing press release and reaching out to a larger audience. However, uh, because of the uh, such a evolution in uh, social network service, um, people are just talking about this study a lot, and they they are kind of there's a word of mouth that is reaching out to an even larger community. And and why do you think um, this appealed to so many uh, people? What, is it because it's about men and women, um, or, or 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 what were the what were the reasons you think might have um, kind of uh, made lots of people interact with this research? Um, I think there's two reasons. One is like uh, it applies to everybody. You know, in some times of some period of your life, you interact with doctors, and people have some kind of everybody has some their perception about male versus female in terms of how doctors practice medicine. Um, and I think that leads to a lot of people discussing about uh, their gender difference in in uh, in quality of care that it somehow relate to their uh, everyday life. And the other part is um, social issues. Um, people are talking about uh, gender gap in the wages or their promotion. And I think that uh, uh, the findings were uh, informative for those people who are um, in the a- active in that field. Mm. And was engaging a wider audience everything that you, um, was ever something that you were trying to do, or did this just kind of happen without you really trying to do it? Uh, I would say it happened with that we were trying to do, but it was, it was um, we were glad to see that a lot of people were starting to uh, show interest in terms uh, looking at the gender difference in differences and in, in healthcare. So there was a study that came out uh, in October. And that looked at the gender difference among surgeons, and they came from uh, Ontario, Canada. And I think uh, the researchers started to look into this topic. Uh, Part of the reason why they looked into it was that uh, our our paper was um, covered by a lot of media. And then finally, Yusuke, um, are there any tips you'd give other researchers looking to get attention for their work, or any advice you have for making sure, I guess, the right people see it? Sure. Um, this is a tip I got from my mentor, who is uh, Anupam Jenner, who is also uh, a co-author of the paper. And the way he comes up with an um, interesting research question is he always um, pitches to other people, talk to other people. And you can tell from the response of people where it is like a, something interesting for everybody or something you think is really interesting but not for uh, a larger audience, and for this paper, it was it was quite uh, obvious because every time I, I I would you know I tell people about what I'm doing at the for my research, everybody would engage in the uh, in the discussion and start talking about their their experience uh, interacting with either male or female doctors. Of course, it's not just the authors who play a part in disseminating their work. Journals like The Lancet, whose articles feature really prominently in the list this year, also have a big role to play in the process. We spoke to the editor, Richard Horton, to learn more about the work they do to ensure the published research is reaching a broader audience. A lot of Lancet papers feature in the top 100 list this year. Um, What do you think it is about the research that has led to such widespread attention? In one word, globalization. 
uh, over the past decade, science has become increasingly global, and The Lancet has tried very much to um, promote a global conversation about science. And I think that the results that we are seeing reflect the fact that science is increasingly internationally collaborative. And since that's a major mission for us, I think that's being reflected in these results. And you've been quoted before as saying that what you want to be measured by as a publisher is whether the work you publish has a real effect in human lives and health. Could you tell us a bit uh, more about that? I think in the past, the way in which we've measured ourselves has been in terms of citations um, or downloads online. And that's just not good enough. Uh, Publishing a report and having it on the shelf or having it in a digital archive makes no difference to anybody. And we want to make sure that the work we publish really does have a human impact. Um, It's a challenge to measure that. But it's the only endpoint that really matters. And attention um, is one thing, and being able to capture that true real-world impact is, in most cases, really something quite different. Uh, do you think there is a relation uh, between the two? There is definitely a relation. Attention is necessary before you can have impact, but clearly it's not sufficient. And so once we've caught people's attention, then we have to make sure the work we publish um, is then translated into action in some way. And that is, a, that is a particular focus that we're having now. How do we make sure that the work we publish really has a lasting impact? And, and what initiatives have uh, you put in place as a publisher to help disseminate your articles more broadly? I think many publishers have been slow to take up the opportunities of social media. And this is a particular concern for us. We want to ramp up our presence in social media. Platforms like Twitter and Facebook really can promote a global conversation about science in ways no other media can. Um, And we want to try and exploit those as much as possible to promote this global conversation. So I think that's the first, first effort. The second is to actually take our work to countries. Um, It's no good sitting in an office in London and receiving papers, reviewing them and publishing them. We have to get out there into countries where the action is and make sure the work is being read by policymakers, read by health professionals and health workers, um, and then used in their daily lives. So that means a big effort at global outreach, and that's also a big priority for us today. And how do you think being aware of the online conversations and discussions relating to a researcher's work can help researchers? I think we're in an era now where we need to consider the communication between science and society as two-way. In the past, researchers have published their work to a research community in a very linear one-way fashion and probably without much consideration of the public or policymakers. But that's, again, just not good enough in today's world. Um, I think researchers have to think that they will have many audiences and they need to write their work for many audiences if it's truly to make a difference. But equally, 
I think they and we at journals have to listen to what policymakers, professionals and the public um, are actually asking for and we have to adapt to their needs and their needs are that they need actionable evidence, actionable knowledge to help improve the quality of their decision making and that means that we need to change our ways too in the way we deliver information, in the way we promote that information and the way we encourage a conversation, a dialogue about that new research. So I think the online world is radically transforming publishing and we have to keep ahead of the curve and that's uh, a challenging but um, an absolutely fascinating job to do in today's world. If you would like to know more about the Altmetric Top 100, head online at altmetric.com slash top 100.